Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Deb Jarvie, and I will be your moderator this afternoon for SACPA's presenter. So welcome to SACPA, and if I could please remind everybody at this point in time to turn off your cell phones. Thank you. Just a reminder that this session is being recorded, and that you will be able to uh, listen to the recording on the SACPA website. If everybody could please put their $11 into the basket for your lunch, and if someone at uh, each table could please verify that you have the correct amount in the basket, and SACPA will be coming around shortly to collect. SACPA is a volunteer nonprofit organization and relies on the contributions of members and session attendees to continue its work. If anyone is interested in obtaining a membership, they're available from Lisa, who's sitting over by the wall here. I'd like to thank the partners of SACPA, the University of Lethbridge for support and distribution of notices, Country Kitchen Catering for the great lunches that are provided at SACPA, Shaw TV for broadcasting sessions Sundays at 4.30 p.m., and to the Lethbridge Herald also, and other media for covering SACPA events. The format of today's session will be three 25 to 30 minute sessions, starting with our presentation, followed by lunch, and then the question period. And we will finish at approximately 1.30. This afternoon's presenter is Shannon Frank. Shannon is the Executive Director of the Old Man Watershed Council a not-for-profit organization working to maintain and improve the old man watershed. The OWC has a broad range of members and supporters in order to represent all residents of the old man watershed for the long-term benefit of people, wildlife, and habitat. Shannon attended the University of Lethbridge where she obtained her bachelor's degree in environmental science. She previously worked for Alberta Fish and Wildlife on the Multiple Species at Risk program called Multisar. And it's very fitting that Shannon is talking to us today as tomorrow, March 22nd, is World Water Day. So if you could join me please in welcoming Shannon to the podium. It's good to be here. Nice to see lots of uh, people that I know. So I'll just dive right in because it's a lot to cover. Um, so this is the area of the Old Man Watershed, just so we're all on the same page. It goes from the North and High River there um, to the American side of things and then over to Grassy Lake in the east and up along um, the eastern slopes of the border of British Columbia. And, and in that is our headwaters. So we've, um, we've chosen highways to make it easy for people to picture in their minds and understand what we're talking about. Um, we have Highway 22 is that one black line going north to south and then 
kind of goes over to Highway 3 and 6 and then over to the Beezer Road. So roughly um, that is the area that is our water towers. Um, and we also looked at precipitation when we, when we chose these boundaries. And um, it really is um, our water towers because it's 90% of the water in the whole rest of the watershed is coming from this small area. It's only 24% uh, of the actual land area, and it's only roughly 30 kilometers wide. So it's a pretty small strip, but really critical because it has high precipitation in the mountains, high snow accumulation <coughs> that we depend on downstream. And of course, our river joins up with the Bow River to form the South Saskatchewan River, which flows into like Winnipeg and out to Hudson's Bay. So we are really the water supply for a large portion of the downstream communities. So we have a, a pretty big responsibility. Um, so in these headwaters, there's quite a lot of going on. The intensity of use has really increased. Um, we, uh, we have a lot of different land uses going on and we expect that this will continue. So the trends are that we will have more population, more land use and all of that. And so we're, we're really looking at the cumulative impact of all of this stuff in such a small area. And we know that there's you know, quite a few concerns for about water quality, fragmented fish and wildlife habitat, um, and changes in water supply. So those were some of our key issues going into this. And so I'm, I'm just going to run through some of the, the latest health report that we've done for the headwaters. And we call it our indicators project. So originally we looked at 25 indicators that would help us kind of determine what the health is. And we found that there was very limited data available. Um, unfortunately, we weren't even able to look at water quality. And so we ended up with these five that are listed. Um, and we're hoping to um, improve our, our data and, and then do some look at some more indicators in the future. And so um, indicators are, are, are called pressure or condition indicators, and you don't have to worry too much about that. Um, basically what we did was we um, split the watershed into sub-watersheds, so each small area. So the, the land area where runoff goes into one specific creek or stream and there turned out to be about 180 of them, which is quite a lot. And they do range in size, and we base it on um, the size of the stream, of a fourth-order stream. And then, so the first indicator that we looked at was intact landscape. So how much of the, the watersheds are still, you know, relatively pristine? Um, so what we did was we basically put all of the human footprint on the landscape, and then assumed that anything else was still intact. Um, we, we looked at about a 500 hectare patch size limit because that's what's needed for some of the large wildlife like grizzly bears. So that we're getting uh, fairly technical, so if you have any questions you don't understand, just stop me, please. Um, so these were some of the results. We looked at high, moderate, and low, and, and negligible risk. So we have um, 
about 50% of the landscape is intact for um, the 180 watersheds that we looked at. And if you look at that by area, area of land, it's about 45% of the area is still in, in good shape. So you can see the red areas are high risk. They're, they're less than 30% intact. And what that really means is that we, we've lost quite a few species. The populations have really declined. Um, the moderate risk means that we've lost some species. Um, the literature, the scientific literature suggests up to 50% of mammals and amphibians are starting to disappear at a moderate risk. And that, so it's 30 to 50% intact. Um, the low risk is 50 to 75% intact, where um, only sensitive species would be impacted, but the majority would be like fairly okay. And then the negligible risk is where even the sensitive species would, would basically be all right. So you can see there's quite a swath from Waterton up the castle there that's still uh, really in good shape overall for um, just having that, those large patches intact. And, and then there's quite a, a bit of kind of moderate to high risk more along the east, which we would expect. Oh, and I, sh I should mention that that one uh, red piece over here, We realized that we'd, we'd missed out on some of the native fescue so that is still intact, so we're actually going to fix that. So some of that red will, will actually be intact. Um, so basically this means that you know, some of the biodiversity and ecosystem function has decreased in those areas of high risk, and so they're not as resilient to disturbance. Um, and means that water quality is probably slightly lower than it would have been otherwise. And that um, you know, some of the large species, like I said, grizzly bear, American martin, and northern goshawk, those umbrella species that require large areas, have started to decline. Uh, for the road density results, so that was our second indicator, looking at road density is looking just at truck accessible roads, so kind of the, the bigger roads um, in each of the 180 watersheds. So as we would expect, it's a lot higher in some of the urban areas around Crowsness Pass, Pincher Creek, where there's more um, uh, human development. And then a little bit surprising with some of the areas that, that are, you know, we think of them as fairly wild, but they do have pretty high road densities. And we kept this one separate from all other linear features because these kind of larger roads have um, a much higher impact on water quality and biodiversity and things like that. Even at low densities, they can have a much higher impact um, because there's much higher um, mortality from collisions with vehicles um, and there's a lot more um, kind of erosion, contamination, runoff with you know, sand, dust, um, there can even be some heavy metals running off into the streams through erosion. Um, so if you look at the red, the high risk, it basically means uh, fish, elk, amphibians, uh, their populations have decreased significantly. 
Um, moderate risk means they've, they've decreased a little bit, but not as much as the high risk. Um, and, and bull trout in particular are one species that can be affected. They're fairly sensitive. Um, low risk is where, um, you know, rich species richness might decrease a little bit, but overall it's in fairly good shape. And then even at negligible risk, roads have such a high potential to impact water quality that bull trout uh, spawning reds can still be impacted. Um, so some of the things we still need to look at for, for this indicator are the intensity of use, because we know that busy roads have a much higher um, mortality rate for collisions and likely more erosion. So that's something we also want to tease out eventually once we can get some data together. Um, and that well-made roads and well-maintained roads also have less impact. So we also need to look at you know, which roads are poorly maintained versus you know, very well-maintained. Um, and we are missing roads, like I, I said earlier. So we are looking at um, how to capture those roads from air photos. Um, so then we also know that roads aren't the only linear disturbance. There's also um, cut blocks, um, you know, in-block roads for hauling wood out, um, uh, off-road vehicle trails, um, seismic lines, things like that. So looking at um, all of the, the linear disturbance is the brown, so obviously a lot more than just the purple is just the roads on, on the left. So if we look at all linear disturbance, we're looking at um, about 69% of the area of land is at moderate to high risk instead of just the 45% that it was with just roads. And so um, what this means is for the high risk, the red, um, is that some of those um, umbrella species that I talked about are declining uh, maybe up to 50%. And that, because they are those umbrella species, that means you know, a lot of things under, underneath them are also declining. Um, at moderate risk, populations start to decline. Um, low risk um, is that threshold was set by a grizzly bear survival, so they will survive up to about 1.2 uh, kilometers per kilometer squared, but you know, it's getting close to that edge where it's not very good habitat for them anymore. And then negligible rest risk is where you know, things are pretty much okay. Um, so what we're looking at here is basically reduced water quality, increased wildlife mortality, um, increased hunting pressure potentially, and introduction of non-native non species. And that could be um, you know, animals or plants. And the, the big one is really erosion. And so um, linear, these linear features really do create a barrier for some species, um, especially amphibians. They, they will really avoid crossing roads. Um, just That's just how they behave, or some are actually physically unable to, or they would be preyed upon more easily. Um, and those, some of those large mammals really just avoid landscapes with high densities of, of linear features. So then looking at erosion, our fourth indicator, um, and this is really um, looking at places that the slopes are very steep, so uh, greater than 40% grade. Um, where places that tend to be wet, either ephemerally or permanently, 
and then putting that together and looking at where the roads are and the other linear features. So putting all those three things together, you find um, where are there steep, wet areas that have a lot of linear features. That's basically what the map is showing. And we didn't have um, the, the data for some of that south portion, that's why it's uh, grayed out. But um, these are areas that typically have thin soils, you know, um, that easily run off. And um, it really, the, the main concern with erosion is a lot of the fish and amphibian species, the bull trout and the west slope cutthroat trout that are threatened in Alberta. And, and um, I think one of them was actually just moved up to endangered, so they're really on the cusp of disappearing. And they, it can reduce water clarity when, when the soil runs into the water, and they need clear, clean water. Um, it can decrease fish egg survival and spawning success of adult females. And, and one thing they're finding new, kind of new research is showing that it will actually cement the bottoms of the stream banks. The, so the, the soil that runs off becomes cemented on the bottom of the stream, and then the fish have trouble forming of their red where they they create like a little they clean out a little spot where they lay their eggs and they can't do that because it's like cement um, the stream flow regime was our last indicator so we found that total annual flow and summer flow has declined at some of the water survey of Canada sites those are the ones in red where we have a strong decreasing trend um, stream, stream, spring flow has significantly decreased in five out of ten stations, and that spring melt is occurring earlier out of four of 13 stations. And so we, they, the suggestion was that this is because of lower sub, uh, snowpack and also um, increased sublimation. And this are, these are averages over long periods of time. Obviously, some years will be high snowpack and some will be lower, and it will vary. But overall, the long-term trend is there is some decreasing. Um, and this is fairly concerning because we live in a pretty dry area where you know, we, we already know um, from Dr. Stefan Kienzel's work that we, we are having longer growing seasons, more heat waves, more evaporation, and so therefore we will need more water. Um, implications for management would be you know, trying to figure out the timing of runoff where we would need to store water more in our headwaters and use that area as our um, um, to keep us resilient to to these changes and make sure it's being released slowly into our streams and our reservoirs and and recharging our groundwater. Okay, so that was um, our our new report on the health, and then I just wanted to point out that it's this same um, sort of findings are, are supported by a lot of other studies and, and by people on the ground that have seen things change over time themselves. So I've listed a whole bunch of reports from communities and from scientists that really do support this work. So we're, we're very confident that it's, um, you know, it's, it's top-notch, it's real, and we can use it to make management decisions. So, so I pointed out kind of a few concerns there. So what are we going to do about it? Um, are we going to just sit back and watch it happen or, or sit back and complain? 
And, and we at the Old Man Watershed Council think, no, we need to work together to find solutions. So I love this quote from Lorne because he really captures, um, I guess, how we feel in the watershed business, is that it is very overwhelming um, because it's such a huge scale. But we can make it more manageable if we work together as a community. And so what, what our job is at the OWC um, as a watershed planning and advisory council um, designated under the government of Alberta and their water for life strategy is to look at the health, look at impacts, and, and then bring people together to find solutions. Um, that really is our job. And so, um, you know, we believe that nobody's off the hook. We all have a role to play. We all have to pitch in, and, and so we're working at this from the ground up and also from the top down. Um, um, I'm going to talk a bit about our process, but the key is really that we set some goals as a community and that we work together to meet those goals. Um, and so part of this, because it is a voluntary process, Part of what comes into play is, is peer pressure and keeping your social license and, and those kind of things. And so we have had um, high interest so far, and I'll, I'll talk about that a bit more. But um, you know, we're, we're starting uh, with this voluntary process, and we know that it's it's going to be a, a long road, but we also know that you know this this road has been gone down before with things like smoking and seatbelts. It used to be, you know, not a really big concern. People didn't think about it too much, and we believe this can be another good example of how things have really changed. And now, you know, 80% of Albertans don't smoke, and you know, most people wear their seatbelt. So we're also looking at policy and legislation, and so we're trying to, again, exhaust both avenues because our, our water towers are so important that we really need to do both. We need to work from the ground up and from the top down. And different solutions will work for different problems. So another report that we did was our State of the Watershed report, and I have a copy with me if you want, ever want to chat about it. But basically... Um, we looked at things from 30,000 feet, and this is what we found. We we're trying to compare, you know, the highly developed prairie landscape to the the more natural headwaters mountain landscape. And we found that, you know, comparing the two, then the mountain subbasin does look pretty good. But as I just showed you, drilling down and looking more, uh, zooming into the ground, there are still some issues that we need to address. And so, and the other problem was, was again the lack of data. We didn't have forestry data, we had very limited water quality data, and so we really need more monitoring of, of this landscape. And we will get to these other areas, the foothills and southern tribs and prairies as well, but right now we're really focused on the headwaters because it's such a critical part with 90% of our water supply. Um, so our community vision was a process we went through where we did a series of interviews, surveys, uh, focus groups, things like that to really get a sense of what people in the community wanted. You know, are they happy with how things are now? Do they want it to be better? Do they not care if it gets worse? You know, 
how, how are people feeling about it? And right from the start, we really involved a large diversity of people. You know, this is not about just the environment. This is also about our economic and social things. Like our water supply touches all of that. And so we, we talked to industry, we talked to government, we talked to First Nations and, and everything in between. And we found that people are really do want to find solutions and that people really do take a pretty balanced approach in their mind. There's, it was, it's been pretty gratifying, actually, to see that, that people aren't actually that radical, that people do want to find some balance. And then the next thing that we did was start looking at risks to achieving our vision. And we had a core team, what we called... Uh, was 34 different people representing different points of view and from different sectors. And we got them together to come up with what are the top priorities. And then we took those and we put them into our priorities document and we, we, we decided to start by just focusing on eight. So we have eight goals and we, we put that vision, our state of the watershed report and the science and those risk assessments into this priorities document where we have our eight goals and now we're working on action plans to achieve those eight goals and one of those goals is the headwaters so these are our goals and we're working on goal three we kind of skipped right to it because the timeliness with the South Saskatchewan regional plan being drafted the urgency that people were coming to us from the community saying we need to act now and because there really was overwhelming support for the headwaters from science and from the community. So we thought this was a good place to show success and get people um, galvanized, working together, and to prove that we can do it. So this is our goal, manage and protect the integrity of headwaters and source waters. We have some objectives listed under there and, and another map. Um, I won't get into those too much, but these are some of our, our more specific objectives for the action plan. It's facilitating uh, public and stakeholder understanding, so uh, helping people understand the science and using the best available science, making sure we're you know, being top-notch and we're not leaving anything to chance. Um, incorporating community values, very important. Um, effective communication so that everyone can be on the same page. And, and then building an action plan as a place-based initiative that um, you know, we can all be proud of as a community. So more about the process, we really have two streams of engagement. We have our source-to-tap community meetings with the public, and we partnered with Water Matters Society to complete those, and we just finished up um, those eight meetings um, that we had January, uh, or sorry, February, March, and you may have attended some of those. And we also had nine back in November, December. So we've had a lot of input from people. Um, and, and then our other stream of engagement is the, uh, more of the stakeholders, the people that can actually make changes on the ground in their operations, the industries operating in the headwaters, people living in the headwaters, people grazing and, and whatnot. And of course the government as the, the regulator that, that controls the public land. So we've had a series of meetings with this group as well going through the science. And I think this is a good um, diagram to show that. The top is the source to tap community meetings. 
The first one was a bit more general, and the second one we really focused on action. So what action do you want to see? What ideas do you have? That kind of thing. And the key to this diagram is that all this information is shared between the public and the stakeholders so that they can hear, okay, I'm, I'm uh, an industry operating in the headwaters. This is what people think about me. This is what people think I should be doing. Um, this is what people's concerns are. So they can take that to heart. And, um, and then the bottom portion is the stakeholder portion. And it shows that we introduced the process and we started talking also about what people are already doing. We wanted to start off on a, on a positive foot, say, what are you already doing that's positive, that's a good stewardship action in the headwaters to, um, to start building this relationship with people. People need to trust us and, and be willing to work together. And then we had a meeting where we shared some of these stories of what people are already doing. And um, we looked at all the science that I just showed you and, and also some more. Um, and we looked at what people are saying from the source to tap meetings. And now what we're doing is spending a lot of time meeting with groups one-on-one, -on -one, meeting with municipalities and, and industry and recreational groups to say, you know, what, what are you willing to commit to? Um, so the significant themes that came out of those public meetings are here. The top three are the ones that really came out m more strongly than the rest. So these were things that people saw as negatively impacting the health of the headwaters. So cumulative effects, everything piling on top of each other in a small area. And those linear disturbances that I showed you were quite high. Um, public awareness and education, people think that needs to be majorly increased. Um, recreation is, was a really big concern as well, and then a, a bunch of other things. And then things that positively impact the headwaters, people really recognize that there is a lot going on and that we aren't starting from zero and we, we can you know build from here. And the stakeholder engagement, we've had good um, um, involvement so far from places like Spray Lake Sawmills, Shell, um, we've talked to the, the railroad groups, the quad squad, and they are really interested and involved so that it's going very well so far. And one of the most interesting things that really stood out for me was when we had the forestry people and the protesters that you've seen in the papers sitting at the same table. And they were like, you know, we've never actually sat down together. And we thought that was great that we could actually bring them together. And they actually realized that they do have some things in common and that they do think they could work together on, on certain things. So some indicators of success is that we would be working together, that we would have a, a good plan, and, and that we would have community commitment as well. And so our next steps are to keep adding solutions to this action plan. We're writing up what everyone's willing to commit to, and we're going to track that and, and you know, keep pressuring them to actually reach their commitments. Setting those targets, those desired outcomes, really specifically. So here's what we have now for linear disturbance. Where do we want to be? What's our target for each watershed? Um, and then, again, proposing policy solutions to the GOA, and we'll do a community process to get there uh, because we do want to work from the top down as well as the bottom up. 
Um, so how you can get involved, um, you can be a member, it's free. I have forms here, you can go on our website. We have a monthly e-newsletter. Um, we have a lot of teams and board that you could volunteer on. Um, we have member-at-large positions for people in the community to join. Um, we have a Facebook group and a couple of different websites. So, you know, we really do need public support to show that this, um, that this needs to be taken seriously. And we do feel that we have that already, but it's always great to have added support. Um, so I, that's about it. Any questions? Or I guess we're waiting. Okay.